Well, this morning we are continuing where we left off last week in Mark's Gospel. Last week, Jeff resumed us in Mark's Gospel. We took a brief hiatus over the summer to cover some texts in the Psalms, but now we're back and hopefully we will be finishing out Mark um, at the beginning of next summer, I guess. So we're in for a long haul. But we're continuing in the next text. This next text, last week Jeff preached from the Transfiguration account. Now Jesus has come down off the mountain into a veritable chaos. We're going to look at some of the movements of this next narrative, which is Mark 9, 14 through 29. But before we read from the Word of God, let's go to our God in prayer. Would you please bow with me as I pray? Lord, we come to your Word this morning, and we also come to the table this morning, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And as we come, some of us are hopeful, some of us are weary, others of us are frankly distracted. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up the word as it cascades from the pulpit, that we would understand it, that you would bring understanding to our hearts, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning. You can follow along with me in your bulletin, in your Bible, or surely via any mobile app you have. When they had come, down, come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis, in one of his more popular and memorable quotes from mere Christianity, wrote at one time, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. Now, the heart of what Lewis expresses in that quote is a deep and desperate longing. It's a longing that aches for renewal, a longing that springs from desperation 
the desperation of emptiness and vanity that so often occupies our thought life. And it's a desperate longing for deliverance that can only come from above. From a redemptive historical angle, it's a desperation that longs for heaven to meet earth. And friends, this is the same kind of desperation that's weaved throughout our passage this morning that we see explicitly in the situation and the cry of this obscure father who comes to Jesus. And even subtly, we see a similar kind of desperation in the failure of the disciples to drive out the demoniac. So to briefly set the scene for us, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, where as Jeff pointed out to us rightly last week, the divine voice of affirmation was heard from heaven, that this is my beloved son. It's a confession, a word of affirmation that reflects on an earlier word of affirmation at Jesus' baptism, where the same words were heard from God himself. And in language that echoes Psalm 2, the divine voice confirms in both of those texts that Jesus is the regal, the messianic Lord in whom Israel's hopes and indeed the hope of the entire world is to be found. Now in our text, Jesus descends from the mountain to be greeted almost immediately by a crowd, by scribes, by his disciples, and in particular, this desperate father whose hope has been dashed because regardless of where he turns, it seems that he has no answer for the plight of his helpless son. And as the narrative presses into this short back and forth dialogue between Jesus and this father, where we learn about the situation of this father's son, we also learn that this father was probably somewhat disillusioned by those who have offered their help in the past only to be let down time and time again, with the disciples of Jesus being just that latest example before him. We'll explore some of the details within this interaction in a moment, but for now I want us to think and pause on this desperation of the Father, because I think when we really step into his shoes, I think we can relate with him in one way or another. After all, many of us, if not all of us, have probably experienced a similar sort of desperation in our lives at one point or another. I know that I certainly have. Some of you may remember, for instance, back in January when Daisy was waking up, my daughter, every other night just throwing up, and Lori and I couldn't figure out what was going on. So we took her to seven or eight doctor's appointments, to the hospital, to a specialist, and nobody could tell us what was going on. Now, eventually they did figure it out and it was something relatively minor, but I think Lori would agree with me when I said that that month in our life was a, th- was a month where the theme of desperation was strung and weaved through and through in our stories. Certainly many of us have experienced desperation like that. Maybe we're experiencing now desperation in the forms of the evils of disease. Some of us are desperate to find some sort of, uh, of joy or contentment in our current station of life. And others of us might be desperate because of something that we've done and we shouldn't have, and we need to own that. But whatever the circumstance, there are probably explicit or implicit moments in our lives that we could point to where desperation has been the overwhelming theme. The question then to keep before us in light of this passage is what brings gospel clarity? What lifts the fog of our desperation when we're in it and gives us hope? What we observe in this text is just as this desperate father runs to Jesus, even in his doubt and even in his uncertainty, and even as we'll see shortly in his budding cynicism, so too this text calls us to hear for ourselves Jesus' gentle rebuke in verse 19 and to experience how Jesus lifts the fog of our desperation. And we see from this text that there are three ways Jesus does just that. Jesus brings gospel clarity in our desperation 
by first drawing near to us, by two, calling out our cynicism, and three, by inviting us to prayer. So first, Jesus brings gospel clarity in our desperation by drawing near to us. When Jesus descends down the mountain, he walks once again into this chaotic scene. His disciples, as it seems to be the pattern in Mark's gospel, they're left alone for a little bit, and they get themselves into a world of trouble. Now, if I'm Jesus, and it's a good thing that I'm not, and I'm coming down the mountain and I see this scene sort of playing out from afar, I'm pretending I didn't see it and I'm walking the other way. But of course, Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Now, he approaches the crowd, his disciples and the scribes, and as the grammar of the text indicates, he directs his attention initially to the likely antagonists. He directs his attention to the scribes. And he asks the scribes, essentially, what are you arguing with my disciples about? But almost before the scribes have a chance to answer, somebody from the crowd, a father, interrupts this interaction between Jesus and probably the scribes, and he says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And now Jesus' attention shifts from the squabble between the disciples and the scribes in the midst of this crowd to enter into the explicit desperation of one individual, of this father. First, Jesus listens to the graphic descriptions of demon possession, and we need to hear these descriptions too. In verse 18, Mark tells us that this demon, whenever it seizes the boy, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and become, becomes rigid. Then in verse 20, we learn that when the demon saw Jesus, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus also asks the father a question. He says, how long has this been happening? And the father answers that this has been happening the child's entire life. It's been happening ever since birth. Friends, these, these descriptions, these graphic descriptions of evil are not just unfortunate events in the father's life. This is pure evil in the face of Jesus. But what does Jesus do in the midst of this evil? Well, he engages the father and the son. You see, it's significant, and at the same time, perhaps easily overlooked, that Jesus engages the Father in his circumstantial desperation. But that's the theme of Jesus throughout the Gospels, right? If there's somebody helpless and hurting, Jesus is often able to peer through the chaos of whatever the scene is and look and identify with the hurts of different individuals, desperate individuals throughout the Gospels. And this situation is no different in that respect. And we'll see shortly that when we, when we uh, meet this father and we and dive into the interaction a little bit more, we'll see that the father doesn't have all the answers. Indeed, the father has doubts as he approaches Jesus, which are evidenced in the way that he makes his request to Jesus. And Jesus' rebuke in verse 19 likely implicates the father, along with the scribes and the crowd and the disciples. But that doesn't stop Jesus. Jesus still meets with him in his doubts. Jesus still draws near to him, even in his slightly malformed understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus still engages this man through and through with compassion. Just as Jesus draws near to this man in his explicit desperation, he also draws near to the disciples in a desperation they don't even notice. As narrative progresses, the disciples are somewhat perplexed, as we reach the end of the narrative, that they were unable to drive out this demon. But they think that the problem somehow rests outside of themselves. 
They think that the problem primarily rests with the, with the fact that this demon must have been a different type of demon, something that, was, something that they just didn't have the right incantation to conjure up to drive out this demon. But Jesus sees matters differently. When Jesus mentions in verse 29 that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, he's bringing to the disciples' attention And by extension, he's bringing something to our attention too, something stunning about the backstory to this exorcism as it relates to the disciples. That is, they weren't even praying. They weren't even praying. The implication, as others who have commented on this text point out, is that they failed in their commission to cast out demons. Earlier in Mark's gospel, I believe it's in chapter 3, the disciples are given a specific commission by Jesus to, among other things, cast out demons. But they fail here in that commission, a commission they received earlier in Mark's gospel because they were too busy arguing amongst themselves and amongst the scribes that they hadn't even paused and stopped to pray. You see, the disciples approached this exorcism completely autonomously. They assumed that they could do something about this heightened form of evil on their own. And in highlighting the disciples' failure to pray, Jesus also highlights something that we as a church need to hear too, and that is the ubiquity of desperation. You see, friends, we're not merely desperate when our circumstances are analogous to this father's circumstance. We're not merely desperate for divine intervention when we most acutely feel it. It's easy to look at the father's circumstance and say, he's pretty desperate. We don't have to really argue that fact. The the descriptions, the graphic descriptions of evil betray that this father is absolutely desperate. But the problem for us and for the disciples is that evil doesn't always take these overt malevolent forms. The problem is that evil doesn't always appear to our eyes as evil, and thus we don't assume that we are as desperate as we truly are. I'm particularly here indebted to Paul Tripp, who points out that one of the central problems of evil is that when we're doing something completely destructive to ourselves or others, or we're being shaped by a world and life view that's completely antithetical to the gospel, it very often looks absolutely lovely to us and rational and right. Consider, for instance, the woes of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah levies a number of woes at the people of Israel. And one in particular in Isaiah 5.20 reads this. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So Isaiah in that text is getting at the very similar idea that very often for us, evil is couched in terms of light. And although we might be able to expose that evil from time to time with the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of our community, we absolutely do not have the power to kill that evil. So let me ask you this. Are you aware that our addiction to sin often takes unassuming forms? I bet that if each of us mapped out our lives, maybe that's a scary proposition for all of us, and looked at the things we rejoice in, or our habits, or our rhythms of life, we'd be very quick to defend our innocence and righteousness. We'd find ways to excuse things very quickly and very easily that might be suspect. 
But let me suggest that if we really started peeling back the layers of our functional world and life view, we'd discover how desperate we are for grace and transformation because we come to terms with the ugliness that often clouds over our hearts. But friends, even in the bad news, there's incredible blessing in this passage. And it's a blessing that each of us need to hear for ourselves. Because Jesus, even as he calls out both the overt and the covert forms that evil takes, he still gives both this father and the disciples grace through the presence of himself. Maybe you're experiencing right now desperation in the form of loss or desperation in the form of chronic illness, a form of desperation that really has nothing to do with your own personal sin, but Effect, maybe just the effects of sin in general on a ravaged world. For Jesus to lift the fog of our desperation doesn't automatically mean that we stop dealing with that loss. It doesn't mean that we automatically stop dealing with that chronic illness. But it does mean that we have Jesus in the face of it. And even though the struggle with desperation in the form of our sin or in the form of the effects of sin in general is a lifelong battle, it's a battle that has already been won by Christ on Calvary and a victory that this defeat of the demoniac foreshadows. You see, we often, when we approach these miracles in Scripture, whether it be a driving out of a demoniac or the incredible healing that comes from illness, we immediately, I think, point to Jesus and we say that proves his divinity. And it absolutely does. But that's not the primary function of narratives like this in the Gospels. The primary function of narratives like this in the Gospels are to show that in Jesus Christ, the new age has been inaugurated, the victory has been won, and we await the final consummation where those little foretastes, those tokens of the new eschatological reality will one day come to fruition because Christ has won the battle. And so even when we can't kill evil in our lives, whatever that might be, Jesus has. He will. And he draws near to us, even in the face of it. This leads to our second point. Second, Jesus brings gospel clarity in desperation by calling out our cynicism. Look with me, if you would, at verses 22 through 24. Because until now, although we've seen the desperation of the Father in the explicit descriptions of evil, we haven't yet looked at how this affects the father's view of Jesus. But now his question to Jesus betrays the doubt and even the budding cynicism that's been made manifest through his desperation. He asks Jesus in verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus responds, if you can? If you can? You see, this question is entirely different in character to others that have been asked of Jesus by helpless and hurting individuals throughout Mark's gospel. For instance, earlier in Mark's gospel, I think it's in chapter one, a leper comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to make him clean, but only if Jesus is willing. Now, commentators point out that in that text, the, that remark by the leper is no more than polite diffidence. But in our text, this father has serious doubts about Jesus's ability. And perhaps we can understand his doubts at some level because he was just let down by Jesus' disciples, who, as we pointed out earlier, in their commission in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, it was to drive out demons. 
Then in chapter 6, when when Jesus sends out his disciples, we read a a comment in Mark 6 that the disciples, indeed they did, they drove out many demons. But now the text tells us that among other things, and among other things, this, this request then by the Father indicts the disciples. But now the Father stands before Jesus. He's not standing before the disciples anymore. He's standing before the source of the authority of the disciples. And yet for probably a complex of reasons, he's not sure that Jesus can really do anything about his son's plight. How true is it, probably of us, that the way we approach Jesus in our desperation mirrors the doubt of this father? Often, instead of approaching Jesus with a childlike spirit, we often approach Jesus with a cynical spirit. So what does cynicism look like in our lives? Well, we see the budding roots of cynicism in this question the Father asks in our passage. At root, cynicism questions the goodness of God. It questions the ability of God. And very often, it leaves us with a numbness towards God and life in general. Now, to be sure, the Father here isn't at full-blown cynicism yet, but maybe some of us are. So how do we get there, and what does it look like when we're in it? Well, I'm indebted here to Paul Miller, Jack Miller's son, who in his book, A Praying Life, discusses cynicism as, quote, the dominant spirit of our age, and consequently a disease that affects everything about our communion with God, including our prayer life. Miller observes that the journey into cynicism has its roots in what he calls a naive optimism. So as opposed to genuine faith, which is a deep-seated knowledge of who God is, of the dynamics of the kingdom of God, of the word of God, and arresting in the good father who leads us in the valley of the shadow of death, cynicism is grounded in a naive optimism and is therefore groundless. Naive optimism lays its shallow roots in the shifting the foundation of faith from the goodness and power of God to the supposed goodness and power of humanity. Naive optimism roots itself in a God who is less than what he claims to be in the scriptures and more in what humanity is according to the spirit of this age rather than according to the word of God. At one point or another, we get let down by people, our expectations of how other people should act or what God should do for us, and as a result, we're driven to cynicism. Paul Miller puts it like this. He writes, shattered optimism sets up for us the fall into defeated weariness and eventually cynicism. You'd think it would just leave us less optimistic, but we humans don't do neutral well. We go from seeing the bright side of everything to seeing the dark side of everything, and as a result, we feel betrayed by life. And one of the most difficult difficult moves for us to make as humans, and especially as Christians, is the move out of cynicism once we're in it. Because we live in a society that's a veritable breeding breeding ground for cynicism. Paul Miller again writes this. He says, our personal struggles with cynicism and defeated weariness are reinforced by an increasing tendency towards perfectionism in American culture. Believing you have to have the perfect relationship, the perfect children, or a perfect body sets you up for a critical spirit, the breeding ground for cynicism. In the absence of perfection, we resort to spin, trying to make ourselves look good, unwittingly diving uh, diving ourselves into a public and private self. We cease to be real, and thus we become the subjects of cynicism. 
But in this pervasive environment for cynicism, this breeding ground for cynicism, that's probably not full-blown in the Father in our text, but nonetheless real in its incipient forms, Jesus offers the Father, by extension, he offers us a way forward. First, Jesus makes this startling comment in verse 23. All things are possible for one who believes. Now, to be sure, this is one of those passages, those elephants in the room that's often severed from context and plastered onto the t-shirts of athletic teams such that if you believe really, really hard, you can win the home run derby. Um, But that notion and notions like that just return us to the ground of naive optimism. Rather, I like how David Garland, commentator on this text, summarizes Jesus' statement. He writes, this affirmation does not mean that faith can accomplish anything, but that those who have faith will set no limits to the power of God. This is precisely what the hope of this Father and us need to cultivate in our lives. It's not necessarily the hope that everything is going to work out the way that we think it should work out. This side of redemptive history, this side of consummation, this side of heaven, that's not going to be possible living in a fallen world. Instead, it's a hope that rests on God's power and ability to bring ultimate life out of death, to bring renewal out of depravity, to bring glory out of suffering, to see the entire story unfold in its beautiful complexity when we only glimpse the shadowy parts. And the trust and hope that evil does not have the final word because of the cross. This is the hope that has the generative power to call out and to cry out with the Father in this passage, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the precise opposite. That Father's cry, which should be our cry, is the precise opposite of naive optimism because it's the belief that even though things are not the way they're supposed to be, we're going to continue to rest upon Jesus in our confusion and in our doubt. It's a confession that recognizes that we are a complex, of be- a complex beings, that this side of heaven are always going to be a concoction of faith and doubt, and we don't try hiding from that reality. It's a confession that leans on Jesus, even when we don't have all the answers, and even when we're up to our eyeballs in some form of desperation. Jesus' words in this passage then, far from inviting a naive optimism, invite authenticity because they call us out of the web of cynicism and into a childlike dependence, which is the only context we're ever going to be free to be who we were created to be. This leads to our third and final point. Third, Jesus brings gospel clarity in our desperation by inviting us to prayer already highlighted the fact that the disciples didn't pray, but in one sense, that really shouldn't surprise us given the totality of Mark's gospel. Back in chapter one, Jesus, for instance, he retreats to a desolate place to pray, as was his custom, and in the midst of praying, one of his disciples, Simon, interrupts his prayer time, presumably, and he, sa- he, he says to Jesus, well, what, are you, what are you up here on this mountain praying for? There's, there's work to be done down there. Get off this mountain and go get at the work that you need to get at. Later in Mark's gospel, in Mark 14, Jesus is praying in the garden, and he invites his disciples to keep watch and pray. Well, what happens? He returns, and they're asleep. See, there's a pattern in Mark's gospel where Jesus emphasizes prayer, but his disciples appear functionally ambivalent towards it. For them, it seems that there's always something more important to do. Now, if you're anything like me, I don't think we need to argue the fact that we very often approach prayer like the disciples do. Always something better to be done. 
We don't really take prayer as seriously as Jesus does. I would bet that the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where he says to pray without ceasing, those probably sting us in one way or another because we're very often convicted about our own prayerlessness. But why is it that prayer is very often not the MO of our lives? Why is it that very often we approach prayer, maybe don't approach prayer, like the disciples do? Well, one of the main reasons I'd suggest is that we have trouble seeing how prayer reaches down into the cracks and crevices of everyday life. This was implicitly one of the claims by the preeminent Enlightenment philosopher of the 18th century, Immanuel Kant. Kant proposed that all reality, so everything, all reality, everything in existence, could be divided into two realms or into two worlds. On the one hand, Kant proposed something called a noumenal realm, which deals with matters of spirituality, matters of religion, categories that Kant believed were virtually unknowable and inaccessible. On the other hand, Kant proposed there's something called a phenomenal realm, which deals with matters of science and history, items that are accessible to our reason and knowable. And for Kant, never shall the two mix. And so therefore, as a result, why would, if we accept this Kantian dualistic schema, why would we expect prayer to do anything? It's only a mixing of categories. At best, when we embrace this influential dualism, which surely we've been influenced by it, it's, it's, it has its roots in secularism, prayer feels somewhat odd to us. It doesn't feel like it really should do anything. But of course, Jesus has a much different outlook on things. As a result, he has a much different outlook on prayer. Because when Jesus, in both Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, when the disciples come to him and they ask him one of the rare questions maybe that they get right, teach us how to pray, how does Jesus respond? Well, the model that Jesus gives is essentially a model that has the disciples and us praying for heaven to reach down to earth, for the reality of heaven to be true of the reality of earth, for, prayer, for, for Jesus and for the disciples. And what he wants for us in our prayer life is the belief that prayer ultimately does reach down from heaven and touch the nitty-gritty on earth. The question is, do we, like C.S. Lewis, ache for renewal so that we would pray? Renewal in our sanctification, renewal for the salvation of our neighbors, and renewal for the consummation of the kingdom of God. Is our vision of prayer like Jesus' vision, what he sets forth in the Lord's Prayer? Do we take Jesus seriously when he tells us in John 15 that apart from me, you can do nothing? You see, prayer moves us away from our autonomy, our thinking that we can handle our desperation on our own, or that we can tackle the evils of the world on our own. And prayer invites us to cast all that we are upon Jesus in a childlike dependence, a childlike spirit. So do we take prayer seriously? Or does the quality of our prayer life evidence a similar bent to that of the disciples? Functional belief that maybe Kant was right. Prayer is a nice thing to do, but in the end, we have to get on with the business of the world. Well, in our passage, Jesus highlights desperation such that none of us who are sitting here are exempt from it. We're all desperate. To be sure, desperation takes on many forms. It looks different for each one of us. But all of us are implicated in the fact that we all need someone who has overcome our desperation. We all need somebody who has overcome the desperation of this world, the ultimate evil of sin and death. 
We're all in need of somebody who has entered in from heaven the desperation of humanity, has done something about it, and who invites us out of our autonomy to take up the resource of prayer as the instrument for transformation within our desperation. As we approach the Lord's table this morning, we're invited to taste and see this gospel drama. We're invited to remember that Jesus took upon himself the desperation of humanity. He indeed really did do that so that we could be whole, so that we could be called a people united to our God, united to one another, and united ultimately in Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are the God who saw our desperation, just as you saw the desperation of your people in Israel, and you remembered. You intervened for the sake of your covenant that you established with your people, and we as a covenant body, are partakers of that, Lord. And so I pray that we would come to the reality of who we really are in Christ, that we are in Christ, we are yours, and therefore that we would be faithful to commune with you through the resource that you've graciously offered to us through prayer. And pray that as we come to this Lord's table, that we would see and remember this gospel drama, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good, and that you would renew us, meet us, in our desperation this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.